I had a strong urge to high-five my mother. She didn't know how to turn on a radio or make a cup of tea. She didn't know me, but she remembered the moves for the horizontal jive. As for mum's boyfriend, along with dementia, he had a wife who lived in another wing of the nursing home. I wondered if his wife knew and if she counted it as infidelity or if she would cut him some brain plaque slack. I'll have what she's having. Welcome to episode 19 of the Our Better Half podcast. I'm Laura Lister-Mensch. It is May 29th, 2016. Do you know where your parents are? I know we all have that dream of a luxury vacation. It may even be our retirement dream. You're weighted on hand and foot. Your linens are changed, your laundry taken care of. Food designed just for you is created and served to you, or even brought to your personally appointed room. You have nothing to do but relax, to chat with others of your station. And in the mornings, they put you in a comfy chair to take in the sun. And in the evening, there's turn-down service, because... Of course, we all dream of our nursing home at the end of life, don't we? Good morning, Noel. My name's Chelsea. I'm going to be your nurse today. No, actually, uh, we do would not. You like to take a bath we take dread a bath? it. We deny it as a possibility. We fight it when it's time, and if we're lucky, they won't put us in that wing where you can't get out without a responsible younger adult. But according to the U.S. Bureau of the Census, slightly over 5% of the 65 plus population occupied nursing homes or the like. of us will at some time need to enter nursing home care, and the numbers are growing as the aging population does. We don't think about it until we have to, but we have to, friends. And if you aren't ready for that right now, if you're over 50, you most likely have had to think about that for your parents or older family members. And I'm betting that this topic freaks you out even more than the topic of this podcast, which is sex. So, Brace yourselves, gentle friends. Let's talk about sex in nursing homes, shall we? Freeze. You're not going anywhere. You won't regret it. If you're young, you probably think that old people are okay with losing their homes, their routines, and their privacy. After all, they're old, but they're not okay with it. You may think that sex is the last thing on anyone's mind in a world of adult diapers and wheelchair bowling, but it's not. Not for everyone. And in fact... There's a growing movement to give nursing home residents back the dignity of their sexual identities and their sexual desires. In one rather famous example, the Hebrew home at Riverdale in New Jersey has an explicit policy on sex between residents and with partners not living in the home. And the policy is not, no, gross, Grandma. Not all homes have these policies, but it's an increasingly talked about issue in training and research around aging. First they take your salt, then they take your car keys, but what about your sexy time? It's time for us all to consider, along with wishes regarding side rails on beds and non-slip socks, bedroom behaviors, and condoms too. If not for our parents, then in our wishes expressed to our kids about our own sexual identities. If grandpa doesn't recognize grandma anymore, can he take a lover? If Aunt May fancies Aunt Camille in the next bed over, should staff knock first? 
Are there conjugal visits allowed in your nursing home of choice? What does consent mean with dementia? And why does being medically fragile mean losing intimacy too? None of this is simple, and it falls to the children of the residents, usually, people who are probably the least likely to have made a plan for managing their parents' hormones. For an illustration, let's meet Laura Zera, an ex-race car driver and author whose brush with nursing home sex illustrates some of the unexpected quandaries of parenting one's parents. Hello, Laura Zera. How are you? Well, thank you. How are you, Laura? Very well. You are a writer, but what did you dream of doing when you grew up? I actually, that's a funny question, because um, I didn't dream a lot when I was growing up. I was single-parented by a mother who suffered from psychosis. I didn't really dream or think about what I wanted to be until I was much older, so it wasn't, yeah, it was more of a survival thing of just getting through each day and to the next day. Really a challenge. How old are you now? 47. So it was about five years ago that I finally decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and you did end up wanting to be a writer, I take it. Right, exactly. So the topic for today, sex and dementia, really fun topic, huh? <laughs> yeah. You wrote an article in ExoJane with the title, I Had to Decide Whether to End My Mother's Nursing Home Affair. Now, I want people to read the article in full because it's beautifully written and it's an important piece, but let's give people a brief background. Your mom had dementia and was in a nursing home, and you were approached by the staff about what you and your sister wanted done regarding her sexual relationship with another patient. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And and it's my sister who is the official guardian or conservator for my mother as in a nursing home in British Columbia. And my sister lives there and I live in Seattle. So as I'm out of province, I'm not, you know, I, I couldn't be a signatory or an official um, guardian. So, so my sister, luckily, my sister and I are very much on the same page whenever it comes to discussing matters of my mom. Mm. Um, and so she, she got the phone call from the nursing home and then, and then told me about it. And you mentioned an additional complication, which is that your mother had been mentally ill most of your life and your relationship had been strained and that the dementia changed mm -hmm your relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, strained is a, is a, is a kind word. <laughs> it was uh, fraught with, with uh, trauma and difficulty, actually. And so we, which is kind of part of the irony in, you know, where we ended up, like my sister and I, with being contacted to make this decision about something like that, because we had, prior to my mom going into the nursing home, we had been estranged from her for 17 years. We hadn't had any contact. Wow. Um, and as children, we, you know, we lived with her in a way that we didn't have communication like a normal family had communication, and we didn't talk about anything. Um, and my, I moved out when I was 15. My sister moved out when she was 17. Um, so we really didn't have a, you know, you can't even say a close relationship. We didn't have a, 
a mother-daughter relationship. And so to be all of a sudden, you know, in our 40s and and to be our our mother's caregivers and or guardians um, and have this this decision um, it, to make was quite. It, my sister and I found it quite funny actually because we've had such a you know because our relationship had been so fraught with difficulty and now to be in this place in this later stage of our lives and where my mother has changed so much with her dementia she she was put on an, an antipsychotic when she initially went into the nursing home. Uh, and eventually the dementia just took over the psychosis, I think, and pretty much wiped it out. Wow. So, so she, yeah, so her personality changed, you know, an extraordinary amount. And, and my sister and I still laugh because we're constantly told by the staff in the nursing home that they just adore my mother. They think she's the sweetest, Cheer, most cheerful, kind person in the nursing home or in the, you know, in the on the ward, and it's just hilarious. My sister and I, it's a complete 180 from what she'd been like with psychosis. So, so the dementia really made it possible to for us to have a relationship with her finally, as well. Wow, what what's it like when you're with your mom? It's just absolutely wonderful. We just, yeah, we. <laughs> She's never recognized us. So when we went to see her the very first time when she was just admitted to the nursing home and we'd been contacted about getting involved and becoming uh, her guardian, um, otherwise it would have become a, she would have become a ward of the state, as they call it, or you know, of the province. We went in for the reunion with her and she didn't recognize us, which was a little bit, you know, a little tiny little bit heartbreaking, I won't lie. Um, we hadn't seen her for 17 years, but given the oh, the big picture of where we had been, and that little that little detail faded because it was just more important to us and amazing to us that we could actually have some form of a relationship with our mother. Do you feel like it's a mother daughter relationship? It's not a mother daughter relationship that we have now. It's it's definitely more like a caregiver relationship where you know we're looking after her needs and we're checking in and but it's also I mean that what I take pleasure in now is just being able to sit with her it's actually for me the very simple act of being able to sit with her and she will talk a lot because that's what she does as part of her her dementia she rambles on she lost her verbal recall, so most of what she says is uh, a jumble of words, or you know, or just uses some real words connected with words that are not real and made up. But just, I just like to sit with her, and she just talks away, and I just sit with her, and it's just something that it's a level of comfort I've never had before. She got dementia, so it doesn't feel like a mother-daughter relationship because. She's just, I mean, her, her mental capacity is so deteriorated uh, that, you know, she's, her symptoms are, are really like the overriding personality. So the, the staff came to you with this question. Uh, what do you think the staff thought? Did they treat it as a routine question that they have to ask a lot of people or unusual? My guess, because I never asked them how often it happened, but my guess is that it happens. I think it's, you know, it's not an unusual thing 
they came to us and asked us, you know, they were very respectful and wanted to make sure that we were comfortable with what, you know, with what had happened, what, you know, that there was no concerns for our mother's safety, that we knew that they were wanting to create a plan you know, with us to take to handle the situation whichever way we thought was best. They didn't seem surprised. And, uh, you know, the more I've read about nursing homes and talked to other people about about it now that I've been writing about it, I think it's a fairly common thing that happens. The, the fact that this happened with two dementia patients is a little bit more challenging in terms of the ethics of it. Uh, and I think the nursing home staff were incredibly sensitive to that. And you and your sister were on the same page with the decision? Yes, we've been on the same page. <laughs> what was that conversation like? The whole conversation was funny. You know, like I said before, it's, we've had such a challenging relationship that we really, I mean, and, and in this way we might be a little bit different than some children, you know, who might be a little more, they might find more gravitas in a situation like this, whereas we just thought it was really funny and just kind of like, you know, this is where we're at after all this stuff that we've gone through with our mother and and, and now we're having to make a decision on whether she can affect or not. Like, it was just too bizarre to us. But the whole thing is bizarre still, really. It's, we first were reunited with her in 2009. So, you know, it's been a, a number of years now, and, and I still have a hard time believing that she's the same person who I grew up with. And the essay ends with your mom and her paramour's relationship. You did have them separated. We did, yes. What were the factors that went into your decision, you and your sister? When my sister and I started talking about, you know, the first, our first response was, again, we, we thought it was quite hilarious. And we, and we thought, well, geez, you know, mama's got game. And, <laughs> and we should just like let her have some fun and, and good for her. And, you know, we were actually, we thought it was pretty, pretty funny and pretty sweet as well, because, one of the things that I'm always troubled by when I walk around in the nursing home is that people don't get enough touch and enough affection and the care home staff are wonderful with them and they're also stretched very thin. So when we actually started to explore you know, more of the health concerns around a sexual relationship and I had a, luckily a, a friend who's an occupational therapist and who was uh, quite well versed in that area we started to realize that there were some really significant concerns in terms of bone density and fractures, especially for my mom, who's quite small, um, and her her boyfriend was quite a hefty guy. Um, so there was that to consider. There was the problem of them potentially falling out of bed because they're in these tiny little single beds in the nursing home. Mm. There's also sexually transmitted diseases, which are... From what I've read, skyrocketing in nursing homes. Yeah, uh, they are. So that's essentially you know, an indicator of how much sexual activity there actually is. So we had to consider all of those things. And um, and I know from my mother having had a foot infection at one point that set her back in terms of her overall well-being. It stopped her from walking, and she was in a wheelchair for a while. And we were really concerned that it was the beginning of a serious downhill slide, and we worked really hard to bring her back 
to where she was walking and was fully active. And so when I thought about the potential of a hip fracture or any kind of uh, injury to her, I just I just knew that it was in in the context of an elderly person much more serious than it would be you know for somebody younger. So that played a lot into our decision. Absolutely. What happened then? For our mother, she really quickly forgot about him. And I think that was also because they were in slightly different stages of their dementia and hers was more advanced. I had gone to the to the nursing home, care home in Canada. So I'd gone into the nursing home and met him to see what he was all about and to consider that as part of the decision. So I saw them together and he was able to carry a conversation with me, whereas my mother already was not, uh, she, she'd already lost her verbal recall and her memory to the, you know, to within a, a range of minutes, whereas he seemed to have a, a longer memory. I don't know what happened with for him when he was moved, but she forgot him really quickly. And then when I and I heard from the nursing home staff the first time that they then ran into each other in a community area, he approached her and she just rebuffed him. You know, I think she'd forgotten who he was already, and so there was no emotional drama around it for mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. How is your mom now? She's uh, amazingly still just, as I like to say, she's trucking along. It's been now seven years since she was um, admitted and diagnosed with dementia. And I believe she had it probably for a while before that. And she's doing really well. What's amazing to me is that for someone who had no relationships, no friendships, or had become, you know, she'd become totally reclusive as, as a psychosis sufferer, She's now very comfortable and happy among the other residents and sits with them and, you know, laughs with them and sings and attends all the activities. And so this is where, you know, it may sound strange to some people too, but my sister and I feel like she's in the best place that she's been in for a long, long time in terms of her mental outlook and her mental, her, her health. Um, And physically, she's still doing great. So we're just looking forward to you know, continuing on with it for hopefully a, a, a long time. Any more boyfriends? <laughs> no, no more boyfriends. <laughs> well, there's not a, not a lot of gentlemen at these places, so it's, yeah, that's true, actually. But there are there's a pretty good mix in her ward, actually. But no, but, um, she's she's had what's been considered a gentleman friend who she sits with at the in the dining hall and um, shares food with. You know, they are quite friendly, but no sex. And what reaction did you get to the piece that you wrote? Well, I actually didn't spend a lot of time reading the comments. Uh, There were more than 200 comments. I scrolled through quickly and didn't want to spend a lot of time because Uh, it can, you know, yeah, yeah. Pieces can, you know, people's comments can be pretty harsh sometimes. I know that it stirred up a debate. And I, I could tell from you know the responses I saw that people had not considered an issue like that, and it was and it had taken it had caught them off guard, and so their responses were quite surprised. Uh, others had been through it. Others had you know some pretty balanced responses it seemed, but um, I know a lot of the responses were were more along the lines of like, oh, she should have just let her have her fun. You know, why did she stop it? She should have <laughs> just let her have, keep going. <laughs> And do you have children? I don't. My sister has two, but I have none. Have you thought about what plans, what you would tell people about what you, what should happen to you if you get dementia in this regard? Mm. You know, 
if I were to get dementia, I mean, the thing, everybody's response to dementia is different. And that's where, you know, you see some people turn into very angry people, mm-hmm. um, angry, combative, isolated. So again, we're lucky that my mom became this really sweet and kind and loving person. I don't know that that would be me. I, I you know, so for me, the, getting dementia, I still, while I'm, I'm happy that it was my mother's outcome, I, I fear it. I have a great fear of, of that as my outcome. And I just, you know, I just, I hope that's not my outcome. It's just, it's still very scary to me. And also because I see the other people in the dementia ward and all the different stages that they go through. And if not, and I, and I still don't know where, you know, how my mother will end up, what her last or later stages will look like. So, I mean, I don't really have, um, you know, besides to say like that I want to have a, a plan, you know, with a some kind of like poison in my night table so <laughs> I can have control over my own ending. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know what to, how to answer that. No, it's really, it's a hard one. And I actually recently lost my dad to dementia. So I felt mm-hmm. uh, these issues deeply, as I think many of us do as we enter the second half of life. I want to thank you, Laura, for this, for the essay, for starting this conversation. It really is a topic we all need to be thinking about more deeply, I think, for our loved ones and also for ourselves. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Each week, we take a moment to do our Kegel exercises. We squeeze and relax our pelvic floor to keep things strong and toned for better orgasms, among other things. This week, a treasured cousin put in a request for something rhythmic, so this one's for you. Dr. Rosalind Baculum, what gem of sexy science do you have for us today? I have a study that's all about getting tail, literally. <laughs> Tell me more. So, you know, when, when most humans lose a limb, it's pretty life-altering. It's also pretty permanent. But for salamanders, losing a limb, whether it arm, leg, tail, it's no big deal they can just grow another one. Researchers were looking at a group of all lady salamanders. That's right. There are no men in this particular group of salamanders that lives throughout North America. Um, They were looking at tail regeneration. And it turns out all lady salamanders have a significant advantage over normal salamanders with uh, both males and females. And the difference comes down to number of genome copies. So this is going to get a little technical, and so I'll back up a little bit and try to break down some of the uh, genetics of what happens in this group of salamanders. I love science. Okay, so this group of all ladies 
salamanders reproduces not by sexual reproduction where sperm meets eggs. <laughs> they reproduce by cloning themselves. Interestingly, they actually need male sperm to do this. Not because they need the sperm itself, but rather the presence of sperm triggers the development of their own egg into a mature adult. So they find the sperm lying around in the forest. Apparently male salamanders are somewhat indiscriminate with their own jizz. So when you are hiking in the woods of North America, friends, just know that you are probably encountering lots of salamander semen. Wear your rubbers. And think about that as yeah. you trudge through the woods. Yes, there's. I, I don't know that uh, your, your typical DEET mosquito repellent will take care of the problem, but, you know, can't hurt. So they deal this male salamander sperm, and it cues the development of their eggs into a mature adult. But sometimes they don't just use the sperm as sort of a, a sexual development signal. They actually steal the DNA from the sperm. And usually in the traditional sexual reproduction, um, what happens in the sperm and the egg cells is that your normal chromosome numbers are halved. Normal body cells contain two copies of each chromosome, one from mom, one from dad. When sperm cells and egg cells are made, those numbers are, are halved. And so when sperm meets egg, it returns to the normal diploid or, or two copies of each chromosome. These all-lady salamanders are typically diploid. However, when they borrow the sperm from male salamanders, they don't have the numbers of their own chromosomes. Instead, they just add an entirely new set. So some of these salamanders have three or even four copies of each chromosome. And they live throughout North America, and a group of, of salamander researchers at Ohio State were wondering, you know, what possible advantage could these salamanders have? Because without sexual reproduction, which kind of does a sort of genomic mix and match and, and adds a bunch of variety into the genome, which is really helpful when you're dealing with pathogens and parasites and environmental change, these lady salamanders don't have that. They just clone themselves. And so usually these things kind of stagnate and they, they rapidly go extinct. But these salamanders have been around for six million years. And they thought that it might have something to do with the ability to regenerate lost limbs, which is a major evolutionary advantage because if a predator grabs your tail, you can just drop off your tail and grow a new one. They might get the tail. It costs you a little bit of energy, but, you know, it's better than death. So they were thinking that these extra genome copies might be an advantage when it comes to regenerating lost limbs. You might think that, of course, all these extra genome copies might take longer for the salamander to, to regenerate. You know, it takes longer to photocopy 300 pages than it does to photocopy 200 pages. But that's where you'd be wrong <laughs> because not only are you doing more photocopying, you actually, the extra genomes, have extra copies of the proteins needed to reproduce. So you might be photocopying more sheets of paper, but you also have more copy machines on which to do the job. And so actually they do this faster 
And when the researchers measured this in the lab, they raised salamanders from eggs in the lab and they compared the all-lady salamanders with a separate species of salamander that also lived in the same area and they removed 40% of the tail and measured the amount of time it took to regrow that tail. And it turns out the lady salamanders actually did this one and a half times faster. And the researchers believe that the extra genome copies are actually the reason because they have more photocopying equipment on hand to make new copies of their DNA and grow new cells. I'm still a little stuck on the on the sperm all over the forest. I... Yeah, it's 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 easy to get stuck on that. I can see. <laughs> That is stuck on the bottom of my intellectual foot at the moment. But I I think we're all going to have to think very differently about salamanders and coffee machines. And hiking. And hiking. Thank you so much, Doctor. You are most welcome. In case you missed it, let me catch you up on news about sex. I know some of you are concerned that sex education is being cut back in schools. But relax, because Germany, the country, is here to the rescue of your children. They are offering refugees a website to teach them the right way to have sex. It's free. It's available in several languages. It has adorable infographics, and it is amazingly comprehensive. You can learn not only how to avoid sexually transmitted diseases, but about pleasure and orgasms. I am not sure why Germany thinks that their new immigrants are unfamiliar with sex, nor why the clitoris is left off the description and diagram of female sexual anatomy, but we probably can't quibble because I don't know that the current sex ed that most kids get is any more informative or less condescending. There are many ways to change people's minds on topics like sexual orientation, premarital sex, but here's a new one, eat more rice. A study on crops and liberal views on sex, I know, not something you might have thought to do, but it hints that rice growers are more accepting than wheat growers on the topic of premarital sex and sexual orientation. And no, gluten haters, not because of the evils of wheat proteins. The theory is that rice cultivation requires a higher level of tolerance for one's distant neighbors, what with the necessities of irrigation. I like rice, and I like tolerance. I have always had a bit of skepticism when I heard how above it all the French were when it came to sexual scandal. The rap has always been that the French don't get bothered about such silly things, but I've always wondered whether, as in many times and cultures, the lack of bother was really more of a patriarchal poo-poo over the concerns of women. Were French women so blasé about sex, or were they just silenced with the old don't be uptight, dear? boys will be boys party line. And so it is with a bit of I told you so smugness that I read of recent scandals in France over sexual harassment by politicians. Silence is not the same as assent, as usual. And sexual liberality that is not equal is not liberal. Vive la femme and tant pis to tyrants. Have kids, don't have kids, have more kids, don't have more kids. At some point, the question's moot, right? Except no. 
a 72-year-old woman recently gave birth to her first child. Be afraid, old people. Be very afraid. Lost your keys? Missing your phone? A study of rectal foreign bodies offers some insight. It's seasonal. Maybe people are bored during long winter nights, or maybe nudists should sit down more gently during Halloween. But in any case, October particularly, you may want to empty your pockets onto high surfaces. I'm sure you will join me in thanking Spine Journal for studying male spine motion during coitus in search of the best positions for lovemaking when you suffer from lower back pain. It's a serious issue and one that many old people understand, but I hope we will be forgiven for enjoying the study design, which is repeated measures, and imagining the 10 healthy males and females who volunteered to be analyzed biomechanically with an optoelectronic motion capture system, and that their positions were randomized between quadruped, missionary, and sideline to determine their spine kinematic profiles. Honestly, there's got to have been a lot of giggling going on for all concerned, right? I'm grateful. Go science. But you cannot tell me that the subjects and researchers did not have a jolly good time. You have no doubt heard of the new adult coloring book craze. It's the new yoga. And kids have apps now, so they don't color anymore. And that is why you will not be surprised that a $15 penis coloring book has appeared. There are also a few hidden vulvas in there, reportedly. And for good cause, too. The Indiegogo campaign to fund this includes funding for school sex education. Express yourself. Decorate a penis. Bachelorette parties will never be the same. Have you heard of Rule 34? It states that if something exists in the world, that there is porn about it. And it seems to be true. Making internet searches for one's favorite things into an aversive experience if you don't want those things sexualized. Good news, though. Rule 34 may be true, but the more fringe the topic, the more likely the internet has many other things to say about it that will drown out the porn. So, you know who you are. If you're going directly to the last page of search results, we know what you're doing. And on this subject of porn, one of the latest things is sex-based exercise programs Oh, young people, bless your hearts. We didn't need the internet to know about that. How did you think your parents kept their cardio health before you got old enough to give us time to go to the gym? Now, the fact that these apps report your activity levels to Facebook, well, you are on your own. We used to just let our healthy glow be our status report. Erotic banana eating, you'll be pleased to know, is reportedly all the rage in China, but the government is trying to ban it. Potassium deficiency now on the rise. It seemed like a good idea at the time is the postscript for many a tragedy. And the good idea of New York's mayor was to sterilize the male deer of Staten Island. You want fewer baby deer, so you snip the fellows and everyone's happy, right? Actually, no. Because female deer, does, kind of have it all going on when they're in the mood. When they go into heat, they don't just want sex. Nothing but impregnation will do. So, infertile dude deer can do their darndest, but a doe's got to have what a doe wants, and she's going to dial up the pheromones until she gets it, including drawing the bucks of New Jersey to swim over to the island. And horny bucks are no joke. 
crazed bucks on Staten Island have gored pets, collided with buses, and drowned in swimming pools singing songs of dear love. So, the deer biologists are not feeling this vasectomy plan. They are envisioning some very empowered females and a bunch of happily rutting males, quote, shooting blanks, unquote, and the inflamed passions of the New Jersey bucks. And, well, it isn't a pretty picture. Hey, you want to hear some news about this podcast? First, and this is huge, is that Our Better Half is now part of the Swingset.fm network. This affiliation thrills me, and it's a great honor, as the Swingset podcasts are a marvelous view into worlds I did not know existed until this past year, and I learned so much from them and genuinely appreciate the thoughtful, fun, and somewhat revolutionary content of these young people. They invited me to join them on the network as a representative of older people. And although hubby and I are not polyamorous or swingers, I get a special giggling delight to be a swinger now, if only by association. I hope my regular listeners will go to swingset.fm and sample the content there. Gentler eyes may need their fainting couch nearby and get to know the other Swingset shows. For new listeners coming over through the Swingset, a warm welcome. I was honored to be awarded a travel scholarship to the conference that was mentioned in the last podcast, the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit in August. I'm very grateful. That will allow me to do on-site interviews, learn, gather information, and network, and bring a wide range of topics to this show. And this old prude will find out what goes on at a conference about sex, and I will report back, and I hope to see you there. So I guess you've guessed. This podcast is going to go on beyond the six-month test period, and that's exciting. Thank you, all of you, for your support and your ideas, as that is what is making this happen. Thank you to Rosalind Baculum for being on this week's episode. Old people, I have been remiss. May is masturbation month, and I didn't tell you. So you have 29 days of self-loving orgasms to catch up on, so hurry up. But now you know why June is National Smile Month in the UK. Well done, Britannia. Hey, this is Dan Savage from the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, and you're listening to a Swing Set podcast at Swing Set FM. 